Dan Abramov is the creator of React Hotloader, Redux, and React D&D. Dan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. In the previous episodes, we've touched on the Flux architecture, but I'd like to start by doing a deeper dive in this episode. What is the Flux architecture? I would say that Flux architecture is uh, it's like a replacement for MVC architecture in many ways. This is what people use um, in React world most mostly. So it's not very popular outside of, of React. And Flux architecture is, um, I think its main idea is that uh, it contains the mutations of data to a single place uh, in the application, to a single layer in the application. So while in traditional MVC, uh, any view is able to change any model and uh, in, in return, any model is able to emit updates, so other views uh, see uh, these changes. In Flux, it doesn't happen this way because Flux is unidirectional. It always goes through the same update path every time. And there is just a single place called stores in Flux where the uh, straight mutations are actually allowed. What are the problems with model view controller that Flux is trying to avoid or solve? In my, um, I know that Facebook was mentioning uh, the cascade update problem, like when you uh, change some model and it triggers a change in a view, which in turn triggers changes on other models and it becomes a mess. Uh, personally, I didn't have this problem, so I can't comment on that. But the problem that Flux uh, helped me solve uh, in the application that I was working on is uh, the problem of data inconsistencies. So uh, if I had these uh, backbone models uh, that would be deserialized from the server responses and they would be nested and they would have pagination collections of nested models referencing each other, then if I edit some of these models locally, like if I let the user edit the data, then I'm going to end up in, with inconsistencies uh, because uh, this data is duplicated because uh, many different models have the same data because they were deserialized um, uh, unre unrelated to each other. They are separate objects. So what Flux uh, uh, helped me solve is that uh, it made me, uh, it forced me to have all data in, in a single place. So uh, it effectively normalized my data. My data became more like database. So there is only one copy of each object. So I think that this is the problem it helps solve for me. Why does a traditional model view controller application grow in complexity as more views and models are added? I think it's because um, anytime you, uh, if you imagine your uh, application as a graph of models and views and every, um, every method call or event subscription uh, is a connection that uh, you're going, anytime you add something like add another view, you're going to connect it to some uh, other models and the number of connections, it grows uh, uh, much faster. It's, uh, it's like a square 
of the number of components and models. So the problem is that there are very many uh, paths that any update or change could take. It, you, you trigger an update on the model and it's going to notify these five views and they're going to do something with these 25 models. And it becomes too messy because you can't uh, reliably test every possible update path. So what Flux is solving is it forces you to, uh, to always uh, generate updates the same way and to do this predictably. So is this because of the one-way data flow? Because if you... In, in a two-way data flow, you end up with this n-squared uh, problem of complexity, but with one-way data flow, uh, the complexity grows more linearly? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because anytime you add a view in Flux, uh, you're just connecting it to the uh, data source. And in, in Flux case, uh, these are stores. The stores are the data sources, and it's just one connection. And anytime you add a new store, again, it's uh, one connection to the dispatcher. So in Flux, there is this entity which causes a lot of confusion, but there is this entity that is called a dispatcher, and its sole purpose is to serve as a unidirectional um, point where all, passes, uh, all paths cross. So all views subscribed via dispatcher, and uh, in return, all stores are uh, registered to the dispatcher. So that's what uh, what makes it unidirectional. Can you describe the spec for the dispatcher and the store in more detail? Yeah. Uh, as far as I remember, because <laughs> I, I, I haven't been doing Flux lately, but from what I remember, uh, this store is... Uh, it actually differs in different Flux implementations, but uh, in classic Flux, the store is supposed to be an eventometer, like a node eventometer, with a single uh, change event. So it's not supposed to fire different events like backbone models. It's just a single change event. And it doesn't tell you what changed. It just says that the data I'm holding now is different. Figure out what to do with it. And it happens to match React philosophy, which is the component just updates. It doesn't care what exactly changed. And uh, this is the store. And the dispatcher is the thing that um, it has a, a method called dispatch, unsurprisingly. And um, this method accepts a single argument called action. So anytime you want to change something, change some data in Flux, you do not operate on stores. The stores are read-only. They are only there to notify you of the updates, but they do not let you change the data. So anytime you want to change the data, you're going to call the dispatcher dispatch method and pass an action. And an action is just a plain object describing what exactly happened, like uh, like post with post ID uh, 1 to 3, or follow user with this ID, or create a post. So it's just an object describing what's, ha what's happening. And the stores are registering to, this, uh, to the dispatcher. The, uh, the dispatcher has also register method that just adds a callback. 
and only stores are allowed to register to the dispatcher. So anytime you call dispatch from a view, and that's the only thing you're allowed to call, anytime you call dispatch from a view, it's going to call each store's callback saying, hey, here's an action that's happening. If you want, you can change your internal state. And some stores may decide, okay, uh, I'm responsible for uh, posts, like uh, I'm representing the store of posts. So if there is an action create post, I'm going to save it to my internal state and then emit an update. And the views, they subscribe to the stores. As I said, the stores are event meters. The views, they subscribe to these updates. So this is the spec for dispatcher, I think. It's subscribe, uh, well, oh, sorry, sorry. It's uh, dispatch, register for the stores. And there is also a mysterious wait for method that I don't want to talk about right now. <laughs> okay, we won't get into that. You have said yeah. that store in Flux has too much boilerplate and that reducing the boilerplate is often a trade-off. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I mean, when Flux just appeared, um, a lot of people tried to, they were confused by the dispatcher. And what they said is, why do you need a dispatcher? Uh, like, you have stores uh, that hold the data. Why don't you just uh, dispatch on stores? Or some other people said, like, why do you even have stores? You can have uh, actions that are uh, functions and call each other and so on. And uh, unless, you've, um, unless you're really thinking about the uh, constraints that Flux allows, uh, that uh, Flux enforces, and why it tries to enforce them, you're going to have a hard time uh, understanding Flux. So the constraints that it tries to enforce is that um, one of them allows uh, record and replay, and this was actually an, an important use case uh, in Facebook case, because uh, when they evangelized Flux, they first used it internally to rewrite their messenger, uh, the uh, the messages inside uh, facebook.com product. So what, uh, what they had is that um, they had a lot of inconsistencies like accounts are not updating or messages not marking as red or unread and stuff like that. And they wanted to... Um, make it consistent. But sometimes they would hit these edge cases where the view uh, looks weirdly and uh, you have to summon an engineer to look at it. So what they did is they, they started recording every action because actions are uh, serializable objects. So every mutation in a Flux store is described as an object, which means you are able to uh, put them into JSON and uh, if the user opts in, they had this uh, opt-in uh, inside the company. If the user opts in, they can, uh, anytime they report a bug in the application, uh, the action log is sent with the report. And because Flux uh, enforces that actions are the only way uh, that the, the updates happen, and that actions are plain objects and not functions or something, they are plain objects, uh, because of this, it is possible to read that uh, those actions from the log, from the serialized log, and just replay them and have the app enter exactly the same state that it was in. 
So that's one one important trade-off um, if you're trying to um, get rid of action constants, for example, uh, action type constants. If you do anything that makes actions unserializable, like putting functions inside them or uh, changing actions to be functions, you're going to lose record replay because you can't serialize functions. Right. So that's what one, exa- one example of that. So Flux is essentially a pattern, just like model view controller or uh, not sure what you would want to call it. I think pattern is maybe the best term, but um, how do the different implementations of Flux differ from one another? Because there's, because as it is just a pattern, there are many implementations of it. So uh, what I observed is that in the beginning, people wanted to like outdo Facebook and create Flux implementations that did not use the Flux package. Uh, but later, they learned about these trade-offs and the kind of uh, kind of features they're giving up, uh, and they started to actually use the Flux package, but ra- wrap it uh, to have a nicer API on top of it. Because Flux package only uh, provided, until recently, it only provided um, the uh, the dispatcher, it does not have any kind of create store method. So you'd have to use Ventimeter manually. You'd have to um, hook it up to the dispatcher. You have to solve the uh, universal or isomorphic server rendering uh, problem uh, where if your stores are single tones, uh, they're going to have shared state for every request, which is not what you want. You want to separate the state for every request. So people started hitting all these Cases where, for example, Facebook doesn't use server rendering much, so they don't really care about that. But uh, there have been many Flux implementations. I think the most successful ones were Alt and uh, Flamux. And uh, they, both of them used uh, a Flux package inside with Facebook's dispatcher, but they had utilities to uh, generate uh, action creator functions to uh, or to generate uh, constants. It's the, the opposite direction, but that doesn't really matter. Or they had uh, utilities to create stores without messing with the ventimeters or registering stores in such a way that it would work uh, on the server. So no single tones, everything, the, the dispatcher reference stores, that kind of stuff. So I think the most important um, differences were how they handled asynchronous actions, uh, like what do you do when you want to make an uh, asynchronous API call? So they had different answers to that. Like Flamux allowed you to dispatch promise, which it would resolve on far two actions. And uh, I'm not sure what Alt does, but I'm pretty sure it has similar mechanisms, but different API. So the, these were the main differences. And you've been working on a project called Redux. And Redux is a project to create a predictable state container for JavaScript apps. Could you talk more about the inspiration for Redux? Yeah, um, I didn't really intend to create it as a predictable state container in the beginning because uh, I was just working on uh, my React Europe talk called what, Hot what, <laughs> what is, Sorry to interrupt, but what is a predictable yeah. state container? Yeah, it's uh, I, I came up with the tagline uh, fairly uh, late. 
<laughs> <laughs> so it's like a post hoc realization of what Redux was all about. Oh. But a predictable state container just means that uh, it's a thing that holds your state for you and doesn't let you modify it. And that's it. It holds your state. Uh, it's like backbone model without set method, or it's like uh, a flux store where which is provided to you, but you don't write that flux store. And instead of uh, you, in a Redux application, you don't assign anything. Like you don't write uh, this dot state that something equals something. Uh, you don't do that. Instead, you describe uh, how what every time a new action comes up, you write a function. You write a function that says, okay, here's my previous state and here is an action and you return the next uh, state for the, that corresponds to uh, this action. You say how this action changes the state, but you don't actually do the assignment. So the, okay. the, so, yeah. so, I'm, so I'm sorry I interrupted your story, but I know you were preparing for the uh the react europe talk um and that was i guess when you started building uh redux is that correct yeah it is correct yeah so so what's sorry what's the rest of that story ah <laughs> okay so um the rest of that story is that i actually i was hesitant whether to open source it in the beginning, uh, not because I'm a greedy person, <laughs> but because uh, I wasn't sure that I have something to show. But I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to make it in time uh, for the conference. And I wanted some help with it. So that's why I open sourced it. And it was a very rough prototype at the moment. It was dependent on React. Uh, it, it, it was not with the Redux that you know now. Anyway, uh, it was just a proof of concept for uh, how you can hot reload. Uh, I, I'm interested in hot reloading, as you probably know. So my main concern was how do you hot reload the mutation logic inside Flux stores? Because I didn't really want to create a, fl a Flux framework in the beginning. Uh, I tried to use existing ones, but none of them handled hot reloading. Because anytime you change the code, it's going to reevaluate and if you have a store, the local state is going to wipe away that local state. If you reevaluate the new version of the store, it doesn't have that local state. So I was trying to push mutations to the edge of the applications, to push them into the framework. So all you write are, uh, is declarative code saying how to change uh, the stuff. And this declarative code can be hot replaced, just like React components can be hot replaced, because they are just descriptions, they're not actual DOM. So that was the story, and uh, I was surprised by how fast it gained popularity because um, it's like, um, I mean, it's like 10 functions, only five of them is essential, and they are all 10 liners if you remove sanity checks and uh, comments. So it's not really a lot of code. How would developers use Redux? Because, like, like, at what point in the application development would you want to start using it? Yeah, I would, <laughs> personally, uh, I tend to use it from the beginning now, even if the app is really small. But um, 
I think you want to use it um, if, you, if you don't use some alternative solution like cere cere cerebral or uh, I don't know uh, observable or some similar project uh, if, if you like the architecture of Redux you'll probably want to use it when um, you you start to have a lot of state uh, or when your application is getting pretty dynamic and it gets hard to um, to manage uh, state updates. Uh, like when you have many pieces of state that want to respond to the same uh, user action. Like you click a button and you have uh, this part of the state that cares about it and some other part of the state. This is a good time to introduce Redux. And if developers are coming from a world where they've mostly used Flux, what do they need to know about Redux? Well, mm, I'd say they need to know that it's simpler. Uh, and I, I, I don't mean to uh, brag or something, but it's I, I actually realized that it's uh, very similar to Elm architecture, and that's a that's a very good thing because Elm was created by a super smart person by Evan, who uh, like thought about it a lot. And I'm just uh, copying uh, the parts that make sense for what JavaScript. What is Elm? And Elm, Elm is a language, but it's more than a language because it's also an ecosystem of um, tools. Uh, there are uh, tools similar to Redux developer tools uh, for time travel. It, it is a, Elm is able to benefit a lot from static typing. It is inspired by Haskell. Well, it, it's a really cool thing. And the first time I read about and Elm has Elm architecture. And is, the Elm first like time, a, is it like a JavaScript language or is it is it totally? Yeah, it, it, it compiles to JavaScript. Oh, it compiles yeah. to JavaScript. Okay. Yeah, but you're not like if you write Elm code. Uh, most of your code will be in Elm, but you can interface with other libraries uh, in JavaScript. Uh, but but it's it's much more functional. It's a tr traditional functional language, uh, more like Haskell than JavaScript. Uh, but it allows you to build practical uh, JavaScript-like applications really well. So Elm has this preferred uh, architecture for the apps called Elm architecture. And the first time I read about it, I didn't fully understand it. Uh, and later, it turns out that. Uh, what I had in Redux was super similar to Elm, so I think I might have unconsciously copied it. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it, it's again, it, uh, I think, because it introduces good uh, concepts to mainstream audience. But uh, what I say, yeah, it, it doesn't. Uh, if you if you're a Flux developer and um, you're thinking like, what do I need to know? You need to know that. It's simpler. There is no dispatcher. Um, there are less stateful objects because stores are stateful. And if you're a Flux developer, you're probably also a React developer and you know state is hard, that state is a problem, that state is where the bugs come from. So less state is better. And in Redux, you write, you write instead of stores, you write reducers, which are pure functions. But they often capture the essence of the stores. Yeah, and to get into that in more specificity, you write that for developers using Redux, quote, Redux doesn't have a dispatcher or support many stores. Instead, there is just a single store with a single root reducing function. 
As your app grows, instead of adding stores, you split the root reducer into smaller reducers, independently operating on the different parts of the state tree. Could you explain this in more detail and maybe give an example? Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you write a React application, for example, um, you don't you have many components. But on the other hand, you have just one component, uh, which is the root component. And the rest of the components, such as implementation detail uh, of that component. So it's a component tree. And Redux takes a very similar approach but to the state. And again, this is uh, 100% the same as Elm architecture. So it's not any, uh, nothing original here. But the idea is that uh, when you have a function that takes state, the current state and the action of your application uh, and returns the next state. And when I say state, I mean everything that is mutable in your app, like uh, all the database of objects that are cached, all the UI state, um, well, not all of it, but most of it, most of the UI state, like routing state, uh, what page we are looking at, uh, like e what user has type, uh, something like that. Uh, all of that is stored in one single big object. But of course, it's very tedious to write a function that operates on a very large object and updates it correctly in response to any action. But it's a function. So if it's a function, you can split it into many functions and you can do this many times. And it's just that, uh, just like you don't write one uh, giant React component for your application, you don't write one giant reducer. You write a small reducer that says, okay, for this uh, subfield like database cache or uh, UI state, you call the UI state reducer. And UI state reducer is uh, the same kind of function with the same signature, but it accepts only this slice of state that it's interested in, and it returns the next version of the slice of state. And it goes uh, the same way recursively. So you're able to write reusable functions that operate on small parts of the tree, and then com combine them uh, and compose them to have functions that operate on larger parts of the tree, until you have the root reducer, which operates on the whole state tree of your app. And you've said that JavaScript developers often use mutable mm -hmm. models in asynchronous code, which is later impossible to trace and understand and modify or refactor. Why do immutable models help with this problem? Well, um, I think actually the idea of mutating via actions is what helps here. It's not... Um, Immutable models are very helpful, but that's not the main point of Redux, I think. Uh, the main point is, just like in Flux, anytime you want to change something, you have to dispatch an action describing this mutation. And therefore, if you have a complex uh, asynchronous spaghetti, it is not able to mutate um, an object out of the blue, it has to dispatch an action. And you can log every action and see what's happening. But definitely immutable models are a big benefit and we encourage using immutable JS or uh, even if you use plain objects, which is perfectly fine with Redux, we say that please do not mutate them, please return copies because uh, it lets you do uh, performance optimizations. 
because you're able to compare the previous and the next reference for some part of the tree, like deeply nested part of the tree, and see, aha, uh -huh, it did not change during this action. So there is no need to update. And even, um, of course, it's also a big win for consistency because uh, for there is just no way that something asynchronous is able to uh, mutate some data you're already holding on to. So that's important too. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I guess th where I was thinking about the uh, Im immutability, um, well, I mean, I've had some conversations about how React is reminiscent of functional programming. And with functional programming, a lot of, a lot of times you hear about uh, immutable state um, but I guess I was just uh, conflating just some correlated terms. Why do people talk about React and functional programming in the same sentence? Um, I think it's because while React is not, um, it is not pure functional programming. Like you have classes and you have set state, uh, which is the uh, opposite of functional programming. But on the other hand, its rendering model is functional because instead of um, instead of uh, saying uh, what to do, uh, instead of saying what to do with the DOM, you describe the mutations. You do, not even the mutations. You describe the result, and you describe this result recursively. You have a component that says, "Okay." Uh, uh, I, when I render, uh, I want the tree to look like uh, a div, and inside it, there's going to be some another component. And that component is going to describe its tree the same way, and its functional composition. And I think what React did really well, and the reason for its success, is not that it's functional per se, but that it's, it brings... Uh, the best qualities of functional programming to mainstream audience to solve real-world problems. And when React, uh, React is slowly going into the functional programming uh, uh, direction. For example, they're introducing uh, components as functions in React uh, uh, 14, uh, which which is kind of fun because uh, people describe React as functional, but it didn't allow components as functions. Well, it's going to allow them now. And uh, but what they're really good at doing is that they don't just throw functional programming onto people's heads, like go on and use it. They uh, teach people to use it, and when uh, it's too hard or when uh, people don't have enough training, uh, they give them escape hatches like set state. So uh, I think this uh, that's important. And speaking of functional programming, I read that you read an entire book on Erlang when you were a teenager. Why would you do that? Yeah, I I, be I barely remember it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it had some uh, some impact on you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't say that as a criticism. Uh, you know, Erlang's Erlang's a fantastic language. And it's super interesting, uh, and it has all these. Uh, it has all these fantastic uh, use cases. You see it in lots of message passing frameworks. But uh, I I don't think I've ever met anybody that read a book about Erlang when they were a teenager. Uh, I think I, I used to hang out a lot on programming forums. Like, you know, when uh, PHPBB was a thing and then... Uh, 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 before Stack Overflow, when everybody was just on forums. And 
I think I read some conversation about functional programming and there were um, these folks who would use uh, Haskell and they always their posts always looked so classy and it made you um, <laughs> interested in like what do, what do these folks even read or think about and I think somebody um, told me about Erlang and uh, I went to I think it was when I went to Finland or somewhere where they had uh, good programming books because in Russia they didn't import good programming books. Uh, they had all, only like C++ books. And when I was somewhere abroad, I saw this bookshop with really good books and uh, I saw Erlang and I remembered, oh, that's the functional stuff uh, I was told about somewhere. So, so I bought it and read it. Uh, but I think it's really important uh, to any programmer, any software developer to uh, read a book or two or functional languages, even if you don't plan to use them because it just changes your thinking so much, uh, even in terms of what's possible or what's desirable or what good code could look like. So, yeah, it was really beneficial. Let's talk some about the React Hot Loader. What is the problem that you're trying to solve with React Hot Loader? Uh, just to get it out of the way, um, <laughs> when people hear hot loading, they often think it's uh, it's about refreshing the page. So we're not talking about refreshing the page now. Uh, React Loader uh, is not like Live Reload, Browser Sync or something else. Uh, it's uh, a tool that lets you write uh, your React components and then tweak uh, their render or other methods and see the changes right as your application is running on the local development server, which means that if you have some state like input fields or if you, I don't know, open model window with a tab inside and there is some widget you're debugging and you want to iterate a change in layout because the CSS doesn't work and you need to fix that, uh, you can tweak on the uh, layout and the uh, event handlers uh, and sometimes even uh, objects outside uh, React components and see the changes instantaneously with, no, not exactly instantaneously, of course, it it takes half a second or something, uh, but you see the changes right in your app as you debug it, which is a huge productivity boost, especially if you're uh, a designer who needs to tweak a lot of visual stuff. You want to do that fast. Right. So that's and, the problem. And you, yeah, you've said that you feel a lot of frustration during your development. What are some typical types of instances where you where that frustration comes through that hot loader is a patch for? Uh, I think it's mostly uh, refactoring, actually, because uh, any I, I don't... Uh, personally, I don't work on the visual stuff much. Like, uh, I, I used to work with a designer who would do that. Uh, and I, I know React Loader is huge for the designer because uh, he's uh, tired, especially if, since... We moved the CSS uh, into uh, JavaScript 2. We're starting to do that. It's even a bigger issue because if you tweak the CSS, uh, it's too hard to do uh, with inline styles in the Chrome uh, panel uh, because uh, they're just uh, everywhere, the inline styles. And it's much more convenient to just do that in your editor. And anytime uh, 
you want to you're finally satisfied with the design you don't have to copy paste it back into editor and hope it works because you changed it in in the editor itself but i don't work that much on the visual part so for me it's refactoring like when i split components or when i tweak render method uh if i'm not sure that i can do it fast i'm not going to do it because i'll i'm just likely to break stuff but if I can uh, do it fast and see the results as I copy-paste components and uh, split them into two and still see everything happening until, of course, uh, React Authority does get stuck once in a while, like when it doesn't understand what you did. Uh, I'm trying to work in these cases. Uh, we're going to have a nice error catching in the project that supersedes React Authority called React Transform. But... Uh, that's not the point. I mean, the point for me is being able to change React components quickly. And also, when you have event handlers, like uh, you click a button and you want to fire a flux action, and you click it and you see that, uh, oh, your uh, actual your object is wrong, like the code that creates an object is wrong. So you can fix that, press save, and click it again, and if it works, it's going to work. Uh, so you don't have to get your app into the same state to make sure that uh, your changes uh, went through. A typical React component has a render method, some lifecycle hooks, and some custom methods or some event handlers. What does React Hot Loader do with these methods? Um, so what it does is it, it, it locates your component. And again, we're talking about React Hot Loader now. But I'm working on the next project called React Transform, which is more powerful. Um, but it, it acts essentially in the same way. So what happens is that um, it locates your component and it wraps it. And by wrapping, I mean that it uh, takes every method defined on your component class, like a lifecycle hook or random method or an event handler, and it wraps them into a function. Uh, and this function is going to call the latest available version of that method. So anytime you change the code, uh, the code update is going to come up and React Authority is going to say, okay, uh, I'm going to redirect all these methods to their new versions. Like when Railroad switches to Rails, it's kind of the same way. And now all methods proxy to uh, the next versions, and we're just force updating the components, which causes re-render. So that's what happens. Could you talk more about the project you're currently working on, React Transform? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm currently running a Patreon campaign to fund my work uh, through these three months, which is ending soon. But its main purpose was to make sure that my projects can sustain themselves without as much of my day-to-day -day involvement. And the problem with React Hot Loader was that it was not covered by tests, which is a, a huge bummer because anytime a new React version comes up and there's, uh, there are some incompatible changes and we're uh, doing really weird stuff inside React Hot Loader to do this patching, so we rely on some React internals. We want to make sure that it works, and we want to make sure we don't introduce regressions. So what I'm doing right now is I've split React Hot Loader into several projects with different level. Uh, some are more low level, some are, some are more high level. And 
which are all covered by tests fully. So the low-level project is called React Proxy, and it contains just this proxy uh, logic that I told you about. But it doesn't know, and it is not related to Webpack or Bevel or anything else. It's just a proxy for React components. And there are higher-level projects, and one of these higher-level projects is called Bevel Plugin React Transform. It is currently a Babel plugin, but it's possible to build it for other static analyzers or even for Webpack, which would be React Transform Loader. <laughs> I don't currently, uh, I didn't create it, but I'm sure somebody will eventually. So the idea is to um, locate all the components in your code and to wrap them into some arbitrary transform. So this is what uh, this is all that uh, Babel plugin React Transform does. It finds all components in your code and it wraps them in some way. But you specify in the configuration which transforms you want to run on them. And one of such transforms is the proxy that I told you about. So one of such transforms is this hot loading thing, which is called React Transform Webpack HMR. But there are, this is also possible to write different transforms which have nothing to do with it. For example, uh, I, I wrote React Transform catch errors, which wraps random method into a try catch. And anytime you make a mistake in random method, it's going to display a red box of death, kind of like in React Native, uh, mm. saying the stack trace and the error message. And again, this is just uh, this is just a transform, one of possible transforms. You can define your own. So this is pretty flexible, and I'm really I'm really glad that I integrated uh, it yesterday into React Native Webpack Server, uh, a, a project by Michael Johnson, and uh, I'm going to transition uh, my boilerplate to use React Transform. There's already a React Transform boilerplate project that shows how to use it, and uh, I've seen efforts from different people to port uh, uh, to use parts of React Transform with Browserify. So when this is stable, it's going to be huge because for for the past uh, I don't know two years. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, it's actually one year. It, it, it was just so long. I think for the past one year, React Loader has been uh, has enjoyed tremendous adoption, but its browser. Our counterparts lacked certain features that uh, uh, made React Loader so painless. So what uh. we're seeing now is that Browserify counterparts are finally catching up because we can share the same uh, code across all bundlers, be it Browserify or Webpack or whatever. So uh, I'm really, uh, I'm really glad this is happening. Right. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about your current lifestyle you're living off of patreon right now and that's really fascinating it's cool patreon is a service where creative people can put up a page and have patrons sign up to contribute money people are paying you to make react hot loader and redux and react transform and all these other things you're, you're giving to the community can you give some backstory on how you got into this situation yeah sure so in 2015, I was working and into 
I mean, for the past <laughs> few years, actually, I was working at a startup uh, called Stampsy, which is where I learned React and pretty much everything about JavaScript that I know because I didn't even write JavaScript before. And it was a great experience, but they had some funding problems in April and I, I, I started to work a lot on my open source stuff and I needed even more time to work on the uh, React Europe talk. So uh, I quit the company and I started doing contract work just to make the ends meet. And while this has worked for me because I was able to uh, allocate most of my time open to open source, but some of my time to contract work, it was still a hustle. <laughs> and uh, later I came to React Europe. And when I was there, I was thinking like, there seems to be, people seem really enthusiastic about the stuff I put out so far, but I know that it's impossible for me to sustain the space unless I can work on it full time for, su for some months and get it to the point where it doesn't need that much of my involvement because I've been just doing too much and I'm close to burnout and I know I need to write these tests <laughs> and documentation and everything else for folks to just send pull requests to me so I don't have to do anything, everything by myself. And uh, I know I needed that push. And uh, I was talking to Judd Watson at uh, React Europe. And I told him, like, do you think this is a crazy idea? And he was like, no, go for it. <laughs> uh, he, he said he, he could contribute. So I thought, oh, okay, this is my chance because there's still buzz around the video and uh, people are following me like crazy on Twitter. So this is my chance to brand it as React Developer Experience, uh, you know, it's patreon.com slash ReactDX and uh, to really help people understand what I want to do, why I want to do it, why I need this money and what my deliverables are. And that this is a limited, limited time thing. I can't uh, work on it forever. Uh, I just need to get my projects to the shape where uh, people are comfortable uh, extending them. So I did that and the response was tremendous and I had corporate sponsors like Webflow and ChessIX, which I'm super grateful to because I won't be able to make it without them. But right now it's, it's going pretty well. Uh, I think so. we're, I think we're living in this very remarkable time where an individual can choose not to have a conventional job, and then if you can justify your worth to the broader population, the population will just fund the individual, and that seems really incredible to me. And I, I don't know if if it's you know if we're just seeing like isolated examples of it right now, like such as yourself, uh, or if this is like the future of how people work. Maybe they work on individual artistic types of projects. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what do you think the future looks like to, like in this regard? Um, I have a successful and unsuccessful yet examples of that. So I'm not really sure what to make of it. I think I'm, I was just like, lucky with the timing of the conference Maybe if I started this like three months ago and maybe if there was no React Europe, that would not be possible. Um, I know uh, the successful example is the guy, uh, 
Mseda, I forgot his name, uh, who raised money for the uh, Prose Mirror editor, which is, uh, you know, content editables are a pain, like it's impossible. They're impossible to use if you want a stable application. Uh, and he released this rich text editor, which is really thought out. I mean, he's like super smart. And uh, he really, he wrote it as open source, but his condition for, for releasing it as open source was that he would, um, he would get, uh, I think, uh, 30, 35 uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I won't lie because I, I don't remember the number. Uh, but uh, he, he only released it after he got the money, which is, I think, perfectly fine because it's tremendous effort and it's hard to imagine somebody else doing that, right? So uh, it, it, it's pretty fair. And he would offer uh, support and features to people who pay. So it's a good model if you're... Uh, if you ha ha if you have proven yourself to the community, if you have a critical mass of followers, if you are able to market your product to understand your target audience, and yeah, in this case, it's possible. But uh, the, there is also an unsuccessful, at least yet, uh, I, I don't know how it's going to work out, but uh, there is a project called AMAC, which is also uh, about hot reloading, uh, but it doesn't use, uh, it's not React-related. Uh, it, it uses uh, browser debugging APIs to accomplish hot reloading. So it, it has bindings for uh, Chrome at the moment. And uh, I know Casper was on the verge of uh, creating node bindings, but he has ran out of funding because uh, he uh, assembled, uh, he got some money, uh, he got some funding for uh, the past uh, three months, I think, or four months, but he ran out of it, and it's just impossible to sustain uh, it right now. But there are so many; uh, there is such a huge amount of work, and not enough uh, marketing and willpower to uh, make this happen. And it's it's kind of sad. So I don't really know. It worked out for me, but I'm just lucky, and I I don't know. Maybe. Uh, People like my avatar. I don't know. <laughs> People like your avatar? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Why do they retweet me all the time? Interesting. Um, okay, well, so I know we're running up against time, but uh, I, I am curious, what is the future of React and Flux, and where do you see all this stuff going? It's oh, it's a tricky, tricky question because... I haven't been following on uh, what's happening in Relay land lately, but of course, declarative data fetching is the future, uh, and Redux does not offer you declarative data fetching, so Redux is past. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, this is going to be important, and I think type systems are going to be more important and I can't wait for flow to mature because there's just so much more you can do when you have a solid type system uh, and I think Elm kind of proves it uh, so I'm looking forward to using more flow when it's stable um, I think React is moving as I said towards more functional models and uh, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to mean, but there are two things that I'm enthusiastic about, which is not directly related to functional programming, but anyway, and they're related to React. And all both of these things are uh, 
universality. And you really should watch uh, Sebastian Magbich's talk on React Europe because he talked about that. His talk is called Dom, a second-class citizen. I think what we're going to see is two kinds of universality. And the first kind of universality are universal React components, which work across different platforms. And the changes in React 14 are uh, important for that, and React 15 even more important. But what's going to happen is that we're going to see components shared across React, React Native, uh, React Blessed. If you saw, it's a console renderer for React 14. It's super cool. Uh, so it's really interesting direction. Uh, components that are not visual, uh, that are more logic and straight, but uh, that are shared across platforms. And the second kind of universality I'm interested in is that now that React is going to support pure function components, I don't really see much difference between a React component and, for example, a virtual DOM component. Like, if both of them use JSX, uh, you can just copy-paste them and, uh, you know, map JSX to a different function and bam, uh, you ported uh, some parts of your view layer for free to a totally different engine, which I think is super cool. And as we're going to see more experimentation uh, in uh, rendering and uh, model updates like Cycle.js, uh, which has completely different model for Re from React, but you can take your pure React components that don't have state and copy them to a cycle project and have JSX mapped to a cycle function and bam, you got, uh, you got them working. So I think it's a big milestone for front-end community that rewrites uh, the visual layer every two years. I think it's going to mean something. Definitely. Well, Dan Abramov... Thank you for your time. It's been awesome interviewing you, and uh, I'm a fan of your work. I can't wait to see what you do next, especially, I guess, when your Patreon time ends and, I guess, you move on to whatever uh, whatever yeah. you decide to, to do next. So Yeah, my, my plan is to join a company, but we'll see about that. Ah, okay. Any any ideas which? Uh, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I mean, yet. There, are, okay. there are ideas, but I'm not ready to announce yet. Right, okay, cool. So, uh, potential employers, you can begin bidding on Dan Abramov. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what platform we could use for that. But anyway, Dan, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, have a good day. Bye-bye.